Hello again, everyone out there, and welcome to episode three of the Music Answers podcast. I'm your host, Derek Fawcett. And I'm your producer, Matt Rose. And last week, we brought on Mandy Aubrey and Kyle Feedy from SongTrust to talk with us about mechanical and compulsory licenses. Be sure to check that out if you haven't already. We got way deep into the streaming universe and all of the things that a music creator needs to do to make sure that they're receiving all of the royalties that are due to them. Allow me to remind our listeners to send your questions to us at musicanswers.org or at our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages, and we'll ask our guests your questions and even give you a shout out, Uh, so send them along. Matt, I have to say, so far, I'd characterize our listeners as faithful but shy. Like, they're listening, but I suspect that they're not asking their burning questions, you know? Like, I get it. Asking these questions can feel embarrassing, like, ugh, I should know this already, and I don't want anyone to know that I don't know this. But, folks, listen. If you've got a question and you don't want a shout-out, that's totally fine. Your secret is safe with us. But don't let that stop you from asking the questions. We are making it our mission to get answers for you. But we can't get your answers if you don't ask the questions. Dig? So... All of that said, allow me to introduce our guest for this week. He's on the board of one of the largest performing rights organizations in the world, and I suspect that he's going to fact-check me on that uh, ASCAP. He has written and produced music for hundreds of television programs and commercials, and he's one of Music Answers co-founders. Doug Wood, welcome to the Music Answers podcast. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Doug, before we get anywhere, can you just fact check me? I I listed ASCAP as one of the largest performing rights organizations in the world. I kind of feel like you're going to turn around and say, actually, we're the largest. But can you can you check me on that? Well, don't forget that ASCAP is one of several. Unlike most countries, ASCAP is one of several performing rights organizations in the United States. So the membership kind of gets split up over multiple organizations. If we had one organization, then we'd probably be the biggest in the world. But in other countries, they only have one performance organization. Right. They don't have multiple. So it's a little unfair. Um, (laughs) I think we're, you know... We go back and forth with BMI in terms of who's the biggest, who has the most numbers, who has the most repertoire, who pays the most money, who has the most income, blah, blah, blah. But um, I think it's generally accepted that ASCAP is the oldest and largest performing rights organization in the United States with BMI close behind. Got it. As it's leaving my lips, I'm like, eh. He's, he's going right? to have a better answer for that than me, a better description. <laughs> um, well, so... Can you share with us, it's it's always very interesting to me, like how people get into certain aspects of the music industry. You know, I, I don't think, with all due respect to PROs, I don't think there are so many people, so many kids growing up in the heartland that look up and say, my biggest dream is to be a part of a PRO. So like, yeah, not that they I, shouldn't, I, but this is that you don't, you know? Yeah, I kind of doubt that's what their dream is. And right. it certainly wasn't, certainly wasn't my dream. I started playing guitar and, and I started piano when I was three or four, I think. I was playing by ear. My brother played the piano. I saw, used to climb up on the bench and play exactly what he played. Wow. And uh, I was doing it by ear. I have perfect pitch, which made that a little bit easier. Mm. Took up guitar, started a bunch of bands when I was in high school and and college, and uh, went to music school studying composition, Manhattan School of Music. It was a great experience. I loved being at school. 
But at that time, uh, Manhattan School of Music was not a place for commercial music. Mm. And by commercial, I mean, you know, anything to do with film music or anything that's going to be sold. You know, it was more, you know, serious composers. And, uh, and you know, I made a lot of friends there and I had a good time, but I really didn't feel like I was really um, learning what I wanted to learn. I wanted to do music for film. And mm. that was always my goal, always my my thing. What's interesting, one of the things I found easiest in school when we studied uh, music history was, uh, you know, write 24 bars in the style of Bach, write 24 bars in the style of Mozart, write tw 24 bars in the style of, you know, Strauss. And I just found that to be the easiest thing to do. Not that I was writing at the level of those composers, but I was. it was really easy for me to pick out the thing about them that made them unique um, mm. and, to, and to copy it and do that. And, um, and so that's kind of what I fell into in my career was, you know, write a piece of music that's, that says, we're a high technology company, but we love people. That was easy for me, uh, you know, that, that, that kind of thing, creating music that fit a particular mood or something. Anyway, I went through Manhattan School of Music. Uh, I spent a couple of years doing alternative service for the draft. I was brought up as a Quaker. So this was right in the middle of the Vietnam War. So instead of, uh, uh, instead of serving overseas, I, was, uh, uh, I worked in Philadelphia for a, a small organization, small uh, Quaker organization uh, that does kind of the, what the Red Cross does on a very tiny scale. Uh, so I did that for a couple of years. And after that, I was trying to, you know, trying to get into the film music business. And Patty and I got married. We'd known each other since we were four years old. Um, and we got married and Patty's father was a film producer. Wow. Hmm. Cool. Uh, and, and he was, but he was doing interesting stuff. He was doing uh, films for the Smithsonian. He was working for the EPA and he did films for, for the Air Force and the Navy. And he did all kinds of really interesting things. And, you know, to his credit, uh, even though I was just really kind of starting out and didn't have a lot of equipment at my disposal, he let me write the music for a lot of the films that we were doing for IBM and things like that. And that was, you know, once you see how a piece of music makes the film come alive, that's not a feeling you forget. And mm. and it doesn't always happen, of course. Um, and, uh, you know, I was, in addition to writing my own music, um, I was given a stack of... Uh, of seven-inch reels of quarter-inch tape, and somebody said, "Well, this is the music that we that we usually use." And I listened to it. It was like all this orchestral stuff. It was great, phenomenal, beautifully recorded and produced music. And um, that's what introduced me to the world of production music. That's music that's pre-recorded, that's available for use in films, television commercials, you know, so on and so on. And that's the that's the business that I eventually ended up doing. It's a niche of the music business where there are no hit songs, but you can build a steady income over time. And, uh, and so I did. I built my business uh, with Patty uh, doing uh, production music or sometimes called library music, sometimes mm -hmm. called stock music. But it's pre-recorded music that has a particular feel, ambience to it. So it might be technology music, it might be sports music, it might be news themes, it might be, you know... Pretty much anything you can imagine. Um, and, you know, we were at the right place at the right time. This was in the late 70s, early 80s. 
And uh, literally, you know, it was like shooting fish in a barrel. Picking mm. up new clients was a piece of cake. People were calling us mm-hmm. and saying, I hear you have a new library. Man, that doesn't that doesn't happen at all anymore, you know. There are so many libraries out there now. Um, a lot of people f- have found that, that niche, and, and they're getting into it, and, you know, good for them. Yeah. And and the company's called Omni... Remind, Omni, remind, Omni Music. Omni Music. O-M-N-I-M-U-S-I-C. So that was our company. Um, and, you know, we had a lot of fun. Um, it, at first, I was the only composer. And then gradually, I found other composers, and some of whom came to me as full-blown composers. Others, I kind of, you know, helped with their careers and t- taught them, you know, what I could about about producing music. And uh, they've become very proficient, you know, had very successful careers. And I come back and remind me of our first conversations. Like, I had a guy who came back and said, I'll never forget. He said, I came into the studio and I had written some violin parts. And, and you looked at the parts and you said, okay. And the violins came in. We had a whole room full of strings. And we started doing the tune. And I had left out a couple of measures. And so the, there was a lot of confusion in the studio. And, and he said, you turned to me and you said, this happens once. He said, I'll never forget that. And I never made a mistake. I never made a mistake in any, after that, every time I went into a session with hired players, the parts were perfect and I made sure they were perfect. So I I feel like I, I know you a little (laughs) bit and, and that kind of fierce authority, I was like, whoa, (laughs) that is a side of Doug Wood I have yet to see. (laughs) Well, you know, I was picky about that because I'm, I'm by nature a conservative guy. I don't like to pay people for doing nothing. And and when I had a room full of, of New York A-list players, you want to make sure that you're not wasting their time. So parts had to be, parts had to be perfect. Uh, The rule of the, of the studio was, you know, first we play the ink, which means don't don't give me your suggestions of how you would change this until we've played through it. You know, with the parts that I've written, right? Uh, and then and then you can make your suggestions. Mm-hmm. I did learn a lot, I must tell you, from the from the session players that I had over the years. Um, you know, we'd play a, a track, and and the trumpet player would would come to me and say. Doug, I can take that last note up an octave. I think it would really sound great. And, you know, and he did, and it did sound great. And, you know, it was those kinds. Of, we had a very collaborative uh, working relationship with the studio uh, musicians when they came in. I'm 45 minutes by train from Times Square. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I got anybody I wanted from from the city as long as I got them back in time to, you know, make their Carnegie Hall concert or their Broadway thing or whatever they were doing. I had a big 24 by 24 room with a 12 foot ceiling. I had a drum set and a grand piano and, you know, pretty much everything you wanted, this big console. And I was the only guy there. I mean, it was my room. And, Mm. um, you know, very few people have that kind of uh, advantage in their lifetime. But, Mm -hmm. um, But I did and I will always be grateful for being at the right place at the right time with the right, uh, you know, set of skills and, of course, you know, Patty, who really helped build the business with me. And uh, so there you go. That's awesome. Uh, More than I, you wanted to know. I, no, I, I found myself humming, those were the days. <laughs> uh, the, uh, I, so all of this, you know, this really vibrant music career kind of ultimately caused you to think about, you know, the, the plight 
of the composer, the plight of the songwriter, because you ended up co-founding Music Answers. So how did you get from, you know, what sounds like kind of the dream, like, hey, everything is is working beautifully. I've got this amazing setup. People are calling me for music to like, hey, something's funky. We got to do something about it. Well, okay, so not everything was great. Look, I I spent a lot of, uh, you know, there were a lot of nights where I literally worked through the night at the studio and, you know, nine o'clock in the morning, I'm still working on that track or or whatever I'm trying to do. So there was a lot of hard work involved. Um, But one of the things that happened is I got to the point where I was hearing my music on television, but I I was getting checks from ASCAP that said, no surveyed performances. Somebody had told me to join ASCAP. I did no research. I did hmm. absolutely no investigation. I, I said, okay, fine. At that point, it was uh, $25 to, to join. So I joined ASCAP. Um, and I knew that performances of music on television were supposed to be, you know, I was supposed to get royalties from ASCAP. So I'm hearing my music all over. Lots of programs have my music in it and commercials. And I'm getting a, th- a thing from ASCAP every quarter that says, no surveyed performances. I thought, what the frick? What are- <laughs> Sorry. What the hell is it? <laughs> no, not even that. What is a surveyed performance? Sure. Because um, I'd never heard of such a thing. So I did a little investigation. And I found out that ASCAP didn't actually pay for every performance. They paid for performances that happened when they happened to be listening. And they had a survey of music that was on the air and they paid based on that survey kind of a small sample of all the performances and then they you know they adjusted it uh, mathematically to to uh, to make sure you know people they distributed all their all their money um and so i thought well how is it that my music never shows up in the sample and so i went to ASCAP and i talked to the people and they explained to me how their sample system works and i thought about it and thought about it i thought no, it's it's you know it's just not possible that my music isn't there because I'm literally hearing it a lot, mm-hmm. um, and so I went to ASCAP and I said, "Can I check out your sample tapes because I can't believe it. oh no 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 you can't do it." I thought, well why not? I mean if that's the way you're going to distribute, if you're going to pay for performances, then I'm a member. Don't I have a right to to know? So finally they relented and let me listen to to some of their tapes and I found twenty two performances on about five different tapes. I went back to ask them and said, Guys, these are my pieces. How come I'm not getting paid? Well, you know, Doug, we can't figure out who were your pieces because they have no words on them. I was mm. like, No, that really that's not your excuse, right? That it's too hard. It, it's oh sorry, Doug, it's too hard to find your music, so we're not gonna pay you. I said, wait a minute, I have, we have a deal. I joined ASCAP. The deal was, I'm going to give you my music, and you're going to be responsible for licensing my music, and when you get, licensed, when you get paid, I'm going to get my share. It's not my problem that it's too hard for you to, to, to find it. So we went back and forth, and eventually I had to file a legal protest with ASCAP, go through the channels to, to, you know, to file this protest, which I did. And it was, you know, I really had my ducks in order. I mean, they, they were kind of... You know, they didn't know what to say because I had the evidence on these tapes that there were, my music was playing. Here it is, um, and I'm not getting paid. And so we went to the board of review, and we had this. You know, you know, I walked into the board of review. I put on my pinstripe suit and my, you know, my <laughs> shoes or wore a coat and tie. I mean, I looked lawyerly, I guess. Uh, I walked in. There was a bank of lawyers on the other side with stacks of documents in front of them. You know, mm. the old intimidation thing. 
Um, but I just, you know, I just told my story. And I think ASCAP figured they were in trouble. They were going to lose this one because they didn't really have an excuse. So they called a timeout. And the, the lawyer, the head lawyer, kind of motioned to me to follow him out the door. And so I did. I said to Patty, if I'm not back in five minutes, call the police. <laughs> um, so I go outside and, and I go into their executive room and there's all the lawyers and all the ASCAP executives. And they said, okay, what do you want? I said, well, I want you to fix the system. They, what they meant is, how much money do you want? We'll pay you, yeah. right? And I said, I, don't, I won't take a cash payment. I want you to fix the system so that everybody that's in my position can get you know, their fair payment. Oh, my God. They, I said, look, why don't you distribute tapes of the unidentified performances to the companies like mine that you know probably have? Oh, we can't do that. But they finally agreed to do it. They finally agreed to distribute these performances, uh, unidentified performances. And all my friends in the music library business were like, holy Christmas, this is my piece. That's my piece. <laughs> and uh, I think there was $12 million worth of of uh, royalty payments that that happened in the first couple of years of that program, so the you know my competitors were like, "Go, Doug! This is <laughs> this is great. We got two hundred thousand dollars that we didn't." And you know, I got notes from guys saying, "Thank you so much. I was able to you know pay off my mortgage. I sent my kid to college. I, you mm. know, it was it was it was really uh, fulfilling to me and exciting that I was able to help people in that way." So my competitors got together and said, "Doug, you have to get on the ASCAP board." Well, nobody had gotten on the ASCAP board. This was getting on the ASCAP board was like, you know, a virtually an impossible task. It's an old boy network. Everybody kind of knew each other before you got to run for the board. You had to be, you know, vetted and all that. So um, we found a, a loophole in the ASCAP documents, founding documents, that any 25 members could nominate somebody and put him on the ballot. Mm. So we found 25 people who. You know who agreed, and they. Uh, I submitted my uh, my petition, and nobody really gave much of a chance. But I ran, kind of ran a campaign. This is who I am. This is what I believe in. This is how I would conduct myself if you, you know, if you put your faith in me and elect me to the ASCAP board of directors. And uh, you know, nobody had ever done that at ASCAP. It was really kind of you know, vote for these famous people. Right. Um, nothing against famous people, but you know. So I got elected. Uh, to everybody's surprise and amazement, I got elected to the board of directors. And, um, you know, at first it was kind of icy um, because, you know, people thought I was a rabble rouser who didn't know anything and was going to, you know, ruin the place. Uh, and gradually they found out that I actually knew more about how, how ASCAP worked than most of the members of the board. You know, to their in fairness, they're busy. They're doing other things, and they go to the board meeting, and they, they, they you know, here's the issue, and what do you think, and they vote, and that's the end of it. But since I had kind of climbed up the back stairway at ASCAP and kind of knew the workings of it, um, I was able to, you know, to really help and to suggest things that made ASCAP work better. And over the years, you know, I think the board finally figured out that I ever actually. A, I was a tremendous supporter of ASCAP. I think it's the absolute best way for, it's the best protection that writers have in this crazy world. I mean, you can get cheated by a whole lot of people in the music business, but when you belong to a PRO, you can basically be assured you're going to get paid your fair share um, and nobody's going to steal it from you. 
So I'm a I'm a big big ASCAP fan and a big fan of of you know collective uh, management for copyrights, which is what a performing rights organization does. And uh, so there you go. I eventually became uh, vice chair of the board of ASCAP, uh, the writer vice chair. We have a writer vice chair and a publisher vice chair. I have since relinquished that position, but um, still a, a very active member of the board of directors. Mm-hmm. So. You know, so kind of you went from kind of going up against ASCAP to being all about and all in on ASCAP. Yeah, yeah, and, right. uh, you know, I think performing rights organizations are among the the royalty entities that music creators know best. But for our listeners that might just not be familiar with it, if you could talk to us about what PROs are and what even the concept of the public performance royalty is and, and why why it matters to songwriters and what what the state of that corner of the industry is. So the copyright law sets out some rights that you have as a as a copyright owner and one of them is the right to publicly perform your music. So you have the right to, you know, grab your piano and go out, or your guitar and go out on the street and play your song. You have the right to be paid when your music is performed by other people, like if your song is played on a radio station or your song is included in a film that goes on TV, uh, or you know the airline is playing your song as you you know board the the aircraft, or you know the local skating rink. These are all public performances of your music, and you have a right, a legal right, to be paid for the public performance of that music. So. I doubt that you really want to spend your time going down to the, to the local skating rink and the local dance hall and the local hotel saying, hey, uh, you know, if you want to play my music, please sign here and you have to pay me, you know, a buck 85. Right. Not a real economical way to go about this. On the other hand, a performing rights organization on your behalf will negotiate licenses for public performances of music and pay you when your music is used. That's the theoretical way it, it, it works. Um, and that's the legal way it works. Now you might say, hey, wait a minute, aren't you guys getting together and setting prices? And isn't that against the law? And, and the answer is, <laughs> the answer is, yes, we're getting together and setting prices. Uh, but no, it's not against the law. We've been given a, a pass by the uh, Department of Justice. Uh, yeah. It took a Supreme Court case to make it so. But as you can understand, We've got, what, 5,600 television stations and 13,000 radio stations and, you know, who knows how many streaming services and skating rinks and airlines and, and dance halls that are using music. And there's just no other way to do it. And that was basically the conclusion of the Supreme Court when they looked at it. They said, well, yeah, technically ASCAP is, is uh, you know, is getting together and setting prices, but... There's no other way in the marketplace to make this happen. So ASCAP, we're going to let you live. You're going to live under the watchful eye of the, of the uh, Department of Justice, which we still are. So that's kind of how the copyright law helped cr- fuel the need for an organization like ASCAP, which would, on behalf of everybody, um, collect their royalties. Um, so... There you go. You don't have to join a performing rights organization. I should, just to back up, ASCAP was founded in 1914, I believe. Um, and then BMI uh, came along. BMI, by the way, stands for 
Broadcast Music Incorporated. And the B in that is because it's the broadcasters who own BMI. Now you would say, hey, wait a minute. I thought we were licensing music to broadcasters. And you're right. There is Mm -hmm. that inherent conflict at BMI because BMI is owned by the broadcasters that pay the fees to BMI. Mm. I, you know, I, I imagine their board meeting is, you know, everybody sits on one side of the, the table and they wear their hats and they say, we demand more money. Then they run around to the other side and put on another set of hats and say, no, 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 we're already paying you enough. I mean, I don't know how they figure out. I'm being facetious, but I don't know how they figure that out. But but just so you know, BMI is owned by broadcasters. ASCAP is owned by its own members. So, the uh, you know, it is a board of composers and uh, songwriters and publishers who make all the decisions at ASCAP. We've got 12 publishers on the board and 12 writers. So it's a little bit different. There are also other organizations uh, that are coming along. GMR, Global Music Rights, is is one. Uh, and there are others. CSAC has been around for a while. It was originally just for European composers and, uh, and, and performers. Now it's kind of opened up. It was bought by a private equity firm. And it's a by invitation only. Uh, so if CSAC wants you, they'll come and, and get you, mm-hmm. uh, offer you up, you know, some sort of bonus for, for joining them and leaving one of the other PROs. You can you can leave a PRO and join another one. Most people tend to stick with one PRO, you know, for most of their career, uh, unless you're at the very, very top of the earning pile. And in that case, it becomes a a money thing. How much money will you give me? How much right. How much cash will you give me to sign? You know, with ASCAP or BMI. Right, right. I used to, you know, it used to really bother me until I realized that these people at the top of the pile who make, you know, lots of money, they really um, they enhance the value of the ASCAP license. And without them, uh, ASCAP or BMI wouldn't be able to negotiate the rates they do. For public performance, which turns, which in in turn benefits everybody who belongs. So, you know, we put up with uh, we put up with this money gambling thing every couple of years. Right, right, right. Um, well, and so you gave us a really great overview of the history there of PROs in in, in the U.S. Uh, what's the state of things now? I mean, obviously, even just over the scope of your career, you've seen. You know, we've gone from vinyl to cassette to CD to now streaming and and along the way, uh, just huge changes in the general financial structure of the music industry and certainly what that means for songwriters. What where are PROs these days? Are they you know, have they, have they withstood COVID well? Like like what's what's the state of that corner of the industry? I think the PROs are in, are in really good shape. I think, you know, these days with the number of performances that are happening across the number of, you know, licensees, uh, which includes, of course, all the broadcast networks, all the cable networks, all of the streaming services, uh, in addition to all of the traditional terrestrial type licenses like bars and grills and restaurants. And, I mean, there's just a tremendous thirst for music. There's more music being performed today than ever before by a by a mile uh, it's not even close i mean we're talking about processing uh, billions and billions of performances which at this point only the pros can really do there aren't a lot of other organizations out there that could easily do what they do because they've got a 
all the data that they need uh, and a gigantic repository of uh, copyright information, who owns what, what are the shares, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then they've got, you know, the, the loyalty of the members who kind of depend on the PROs. Like I said before, you know, you can pretty much trust your PRO to pay you fairly. It's kind of like a, a good housekeeping seal of approval. I don't know whether they still have that or not, but, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a thing. You know, it's, it's kind of a guarantee that you're, in, 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 you're with friends, you're safe. You know, it's one of the few places in the music business where you're not likely to be ripped off. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, it, it serves that purpose. And I think, I think they do that really well. We were worried a few years ago. There was a, um, a move by some publishers to directly license users instead of, uh, instead of going through the PROs. That didn't work out so well uh, because it turned out that the level of faith and trust that writers had in PROs was not always the same kind of relationship they had with publishers. You know, I remember sitting in the boardroom next to a very famous writer who said, who leaned over to me and said, I don't even know who controls my publishing anymore. Yeah. You know, because he had signed with, he said, I signed with, with my friend Johnny at, you know, XYZ Publishing, mm -hmm. and then they got sold to so-and-so, and they got sold to so-and-so, and they got sold to so-and-so, and now right. I don't even know anybody at my publisher anymore. Right. And, and so the publishers realized that they really kind of needed the PROs to kind of um, guarantee the, the accuracy of the payments that were happening. Uh, and that when the publishers themselves decided to take the money from the user and 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 pay the public performance fees, you know, it, it didn't always go so well because there were, you know, a licensing negotiation can be very complex. It can include bonuses. It can include, you know, consideration for this or for that. And some of those things were falling outside of the money that was shared with writers so that a publisher would make a direct license, let's say, with the, with the streaming service A. And that license would say, well, you know, we're going to charge you a million dollars. And then we're going to get $250,000 as a signing bonus. And we're going to get, uh, you know, so and so many shares of stock. And we're going to get this and we're going to get that. And none of those other things were shared with the writers, even though the negotiating power of the publisher was 100% because of what the writers were bringing to the table, right? The publishers have nothing without right. writers. Zero. Right. They, mm -hmm. they, the only way they can negotiate is based on the work of the writers. And so many of us, including the founders of Music Answers, uh, really believed that this was a problem that we needed to address, that we needed to make sure that the publishers understood that every penny that they got from a licensee had to be shared with the writers as per their contracts. And, you know, we got a lot of pushback from publishers who said, hey, wait a minute, you know, we're going out there. We're, this money belongs to us because we went to the extra trouble of, uh, you know, of flying to California and making the direct deal. So, we, I mean, there were all kinds of excuses that they came up with, none of which addressed the fundamental truth that publishers without writers are nothing. Right. And therefore, when a publisher gets a dollar, the writer should absolutely get their share, whatever that negotiated share is. So to go back to your question, how are the PROs right now? I think that the thirst for uh, publishers doing their direct licensing, thinking they can make more money than they will by going through a PRO, 
That seems to have died down, at least for now. I wouldn't be surprised at some point to see it come back because I think publishers harbor this idea that, you know, there's more money that they could make if they didn't have to go through the PROs. Uh, so you can do your own calculations on how you think they could make more money than going through the PROs. Yes, ASCAP and BMI have overhead. You know, it runs around 12%. They run the, you know, they run the whole thing on that. And there are a lot of expenses that a performing rights ha organization has, as you can imagine. Hmm. But, you know, there's that 12%. If you think you could, uh, you could do it for, you know, 9% for if you're a gigantic publisher, there's, you know, tens of millions of dollars that you could have. Um, but so far, they haven't done that. They've stayed pretty much within the PRO system. And frankly, the licensees have come back and said, you know what, publishers, we're not, we're not going to do these direct deals with you. We really would rather deal with the PROs. Yeah. Um, and so they are. Yeah. Do you have a sense of what the participation rate is among music creators? It, it Again, it seems to me like if a music creator has done something for themselves on the royalty side, they, it's that they've signed up with a PRO. Uh, do, you, do you have any sense through your work at ASCAP? Like, are, are there... Is there a huge bunch of music creators uh, that just, oh, yeah, I haven't signed up with a PRO yet? Yeah, I think there probably are. And they are probably all young writers who haven't been doing this for too long. Mm -hmm. I think anybody who's been in the business for a while understands that they're leaving a lot of money on the table if they decide to do everything themselves. There, there are exceptions. If you sign an exclusive deal with Spotify and, and your deal is your music won't be anywhere else but Spotify... I'm not sure why anybody would do that, but anyway, if that was your, your choice mm -hmm. uh, and you wanted to do a direct license to Spotify, then you could certainly do that. Um, there are film companies who are demanding a performing rights buyout from composers, but those composers generally are still remain members of ASCAP or BMI or, or CSAC. But, you know, anybody that's been in the business for a while understands that performing rights royalties can be the difference between a career and a hobby. Yeah. Right? I mean, if you want to sit around in your room and write songs, then you don't need to belong to a performing rights organization. Right. But if you have any desire to get your music out there in the world, you want to make sure that your public performance is going to be protected, which is what ASCAP and BMI and, and CZAC do. They, we spend a, lot of, spend a lot of time in Washington on your behalf, fighting to make sure that people don't chip away at the performing rights or any other rights that you have as creators. Uh, because believe me, there are plenty of people out there, plenty of gigantic companies that would rather not pay you the paltry little bit of royalties they're paying you. So, you know, their, uh, their interest is in cutting costs. Because if you're a big company, there's only two ways to make money. One is you cut expenses, and the other is you sell more stuff. Um, so, uh, you know, companies like Spotify and companies like Amazon and, you know, and Google want to, they don't want to pay any more than they're paying. In fact, they'll fight to pay less. Right. I'm sure, you know, songwriters are going to go, what do you mean less? How can you get less than, you know, the, the like 40 pennies. cents that I'm getting? Yeah. Um, 
But, you know, it's all a matter of numbers, and they're trying to reduce the, the, the amount they're paying. So they're going to try to pay, uh, you know, less, and, and ASCAP fights that in Washington all the time. Mm-hmm. We have permanent lobbyists who are in Washington. Lobbyists have a bad name. We happen to have some really great lobbyists who do a terrific job and, and I think, uh, recognize the plight of music creators and, and seriously talk to members of Congress about it. And so far, we've been able to fend off uh, you know, every couple of months, another bill comes along, mm-hmm. you know, where somebody says, well, we're going to exclude all hotels from paying, you know, the hotel lobby gets together. They go to the, their favorite congressman that they paid a lot of money to. And they say, hey, Jack, can you introduce this bill so we don't have to pay any music royalties? You know, OK, yeah, sure, John, I'll introduce the bill. They introduce the bill. We never know how serious some of these things are. But, you know, you can't let down your guard. Um, you want to be really careful. So that's how the PROs kind of protect the rights of composers on an ongoing, composers and songwriters and publishers on an ongoing basis. You heard it um, here first, folks. Do not vote for Jack. Uh, <laughs> he's, he's, he does not have songwriters' best interests at heart. Mm. Um, you, you're, you know, the advocacy piece and the lobbying uh, is obviously one of those things that music creators just might not be thinking about as far as something that is being done for them by PROs. What are some of the other benefits of a PRO other than merely, you know, collecting the royalties? I say merely, it's obviously a huge task, but beyond royalty collection and and the advocacy that you're talking about, what are some of the other reasons that it's smart for music creators to be members of PROs? Well, the PROs really, I think, offer a real value, especially to young writers um, in terms of education and opportunities. It's almost like, uh, you know, a baseball team that has a a farm system Mm -hmm. where, you know, we have people joining ASCAP that are not earning any royalties right now. But in six months, they could be top of the charts. Right. And, you know, you just don't know. So your best insurance in terms of building loyalty and having a good, uh, you know, stable of writers mm-hmm. is to make sure all your writers are, A, as educated as they can be, and B, you help them develop their careers. So, right. you know, ASCAP has the ASCAP Expo, which used to be live, then it was virtual. I think we're going to go back to live again this year. Mm-hmm. A fantastic kind of uh, place to do networking with other other writers, with publishers, with other people, you know, who can help with your career. Mm. ASCAP runs workshops. They've got all kinds of career building things. I was lucky enough to go a couple of years ago when Stephen Schwartz was running the mm. the Broadway kind of uh, workshop. Yeah. Wow, was that cool? Mm. You, you, because you know people would audition to take part in, it, and then they'd come and they you know they'd have a couple of professional actors and singing and and doing the parts from their musical, and then and then Stephen and other people would would critique it, and it was. Mm unbelievably fun to watch and unbelievably helpful to those people to to get that kind of you know career guidance you know and many of them have gone on to create amazing broadway shows so that's just one example of how a pro can help with the career development and I, i encourage everybody whether you're a member or not go to the websites and poke around and see what they've got and see all the opportunities that might be there for you to find mentors to to learn more about the business. I think it goes without saying, and it's part of this podcast and part of the reason we started Music Answers is our belief that music creators have got to be educated in the ins and outs of the music business if they expect to have a career and and survive. 
Uh, it's absolutely imperative. I mean, it used to be, you know, 50 years ago that you would maybe meet up with a publisher who would take you under their wing and right. explain everything or, or in some cases not explain everything. Mm -hmm. But, you know, but they would kind of help you manage your career. Uh, and for many people that worked, and there were a lot of uh, terrific uh, publishers uh, who did that, many of whom I got to know when I first got on the, the ASCAP board, guys who had spent their entire careers in the music business. But publishing has become more of a business these days, and I don't think necessarily that you've got that same relationship between publishers and writers. So mm. if you're a young writer, uh, you can certainly look to the PROs for for guidance in yeah. you know in your career. I should also mention, of course, that that the PROs all have these uh, relationships with foreign organizations. So. If you're a member of ASCAP, you don't need to register with the PRS to get paid in England, and you don't need to register with SASM to get paid in France or GEMA to get paid in, in Germany and so on. So ASCAP kind of looks out for your interests around the world with other PROs. Yeah, I know my, I can say from my own experience, my, my rep uh, introduced me to my first uh, meaningful co-writing partner, you know, so it's those, those kinds of little pieces of advocacy that really make a big difference uh, that I don't yeah. think necessarily people think about when they sign up. Yeah. And a quick note too, just for our listeners, uh, if you're more interested in hearing about some of these reciprocal relationships and uh, more what happens with a lot of these royalties on the international scale, Go back to our interview um, episode with everybody two. from episode two with Mandy and Kyle from Song Trust. Yeah, yeah, they got they got deep into that. And Mandy's based in the Netherlands, so she should know. Um, so in the years after streaming took over, live performance. You know, I remember talking with my musical friends like, "Oh yeah, well, we're we're just gonna make it back on the live end. You know, we're we're gonna we have to make our money through." performing and so became substantially more crucial to the financial success of all performing musicians, making PROs extra crucial for songwriters at the same time. So COVID happens and live music nearly completely stops. What have PROs been doing and what have they had to do in order to keep themselves afloat, keep their writers afloat and kind of forge a new way forward? Well, you know, it's not easy for a PRO to go out and invent a new right. source, a new source of business. I mean, the the PROs all got hit by COVID because of a drastic downturn in in revenue from many of our licensees. Mm -hmm. um, you know, obviously there were some that did really well. Streaming has certainly uh, the revenues from from streaming are on a sharp upward curve. Uh, and ASCAP is riding that that wave along with with BMI, but it's not going to make up for the money that we've lost from traditional broadcasters and from radio in particular. Radio has been hit hard by by streaming success, um, and of course what we call our general licensing, which covers the bars and grills and and restaurants and hotels, right. uh, you know, just went off a cliff. You know, there were some very smart things that I think ASCAP management, some smart steps that they took to limit the damage to the extent that they could. Um, but there was just, you know, there's no way to completely make up for the economic downturn. You know, and I really feel for the songwriters who were, you know, counting on live performance to kind of, you know, augment their, their income. That pretty much stopped for everybody. And, you know, I'm not sure that the PROs were in a position really to do much about that. Um, you know, we have tried to do everything we can to keep our payments up as high as possible. 
Um, a lot of expenses were cut immediately at ASCAP uh, because we knew the the, the financial uh, implication was going to be was going to be really tough. I've been so impressed with what ASCAP has done. I'm on the finance committee, so I see what's coming in and what's going out. It's remarkable what they've been able to do uh, to stem the tide of, of loss. It, we are down a little bit, but not anything like anybody expected. So that's the good news. And I think clearly the economy is is coming back. People are back in, in restaurants and people are, people are buying things. That's good. And I think we're going to, to weather this uh, much better than expected. But again, that's not an excuse not to join a performing rights organization as soon as you can. Uh, if you're a creative writer of music, you really have to be a member. So I encourage you, everybody out there, I think it's $50 to join ASCAP, um, and that's a one-time fee. And after that, you're in. Once you're in, you're in. We don't charge annual dues. Right. You know, it's, it shouldn't be a gigantic economic obstacle to joining. And as I say, as a member, you have access to all kinds of things that can help you with your career. Mm. So I don't know if that directly answers your question. Oh, look, COVID's been tough on everybody, yeah. um, especially those who have lost family members. And we've lost a lot of, a lot of uh, you know, some of our older members at ASCAP. And it's really been devastating to families. And, you know, my heart goes out to them. Yeah, well, so I think... <laughs> Not that necessarily anyone set out to do this, but we've made a pretty convincing case about joining a PRO. So let's say someone <laughs> listens to this episode and they're totally convinced on the need to join a PRO and they join, they register all of their work. What's the next thing they should do to make sure that they get the most out of their membership? Obviously, go to you know the site of the, of the PRO and look for that good housekeeping uh, endorsement that, that Doug thinks is there. Uh, but like, uh, but you know, what's like, okay, you've signed up, you, you, you're linked on a portal, you know, it's not like you immediately go to the PRO's offices. Uh, you know, so I suppose some people are able to do that, but most aren't. Like what's the, what is the next thing that a new PRO member should do to make sure that they're getting the most out of their membership? You know, Derek, that's a great question, and it goes to my own experience. The reason that when I had my protest, the reason that I asked ASCAP to fix the system was because I don't think that person who joins ASCAP or BMI should have to do anything else. That's my, that's my whole thing. Writers should write. They shouldn't have to worry about their performing rights or, you know, organization or their royalties. So my goal as a member of the board is to make it as transparent and as simple as possible. Songwriters have enough to worry about without having to worry about you know, their performing rights. So my mission at ASCAP for 20 years has been to make it that way so that once somebody joins... Uh, they don't have, you know, the same problem that somebody else had, you know, three years ago. So I've always encouraged ASCAP members to reach out to me if they're having a problem, because if they're having a problem, chances are other people are having that same problem. So let's fix that so nobody else has that problem in the future. And I think to a large extent, you know, we've been really successful. I think performing rights organizations have done a good job at recognizing all the different kinds of genres of music and the different organizations and channels there are for public performance. We're very 
aggressive about going and finding out people who are, you know, new music users and, and signing them up and making sure that they're, they're paying. We don't always get, you know, the, the royalties that we want. It's a negotiated process. And under the consent decree that we have with the Department of Justice, we're not allowed to say no. So it's a delicate dance that we kind of have to do. Most uh, licensees understand the copyright law is the copyright law. They got to pay for their performance of music and they don't really fight too much except uh, how much they have to pay. And I think ASCAP does a good job at, uh, at negotiating that. But uh, I want every music creator that joins ASCAP to fill out their application and then not have to do, not have to do anything else. It's great the more involved they are with the organization. I, I hope they vote in the elections. Uh, we, we get, the board, whole board of directors gets elected every two years, just like, you know, people in Congress, which mm -hmm. is a pain in the neck for the members of the board. But, you know, and it's expensive for ASCAP to run the election, but it is what it is. And so we do it because it's the right thing to do. That's kind of, to answer your question, nothing. That's what I, that's what I hope they have to do when they join a PRO. But to stress to our listeners, because I think this is important, and I don't think we touched on it really, there is a little bit of upkeep that a writer does have to do right. to ensure that they're getting paid. They do yeah. need to register yeah. their songs, so it's not like you sign and then that's you sign up and that's it. There yeah. is okay, a Matt. lot of... Uh, yeah, I, I'll, just just for them. I'll just give that them. to you. You're absolutely right. I, 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 and, and I should have mentioned that. Every song... Again, going back to the formation of music answers, we want people to understand how the business functions and what they have to learn. Yes, they have a responsibility when they write a new song to make sure that it gets properly registered, that it's got the proper data on it. Uh, if they're doing recordings, it should have the metadata uh, you know, with the, hopefully with the ASCAP file number, with the correct ISWC and other numbers, this is the responsibility of music creators. You've got to know what you need to know uh, to make sure that you're going to get paid in your career. And there's no excuse for not knowing that. And I don't feel sorry for you if you forget to register a tune and, and you don't get paid. Well, there you you know, come on. You have a certain responsibility. And I, again, I have no problem holding, you know, individuals to, you know, feet to the fire and saying, look, you have to make sure your work is registered. You have to do your part if you expect ASCAP to do its part. So, yes, you know, thanks, Matt, for reminding me, because it's not as though they can sit back and put their feet up and hope everything goes well. Because no, there definitely there definitely are things that you can, like, for example, like we a few episodes ago talked about registering your copyright, and that's right. one with the copyright office, and that's mm -hmm. one where it's like you register it and that's it. Like you have it and you're set until you need it. And this is just a different, like there's more upkeep involved. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we've had a few cases uh, in my career where we be, we've been accused of, uh, you know, our pieces. One of my pieces is too close to something else. It's some commercial, you know, thing. Mm -hmm. um, I've never actually had a successful case against me. Uh, I have uh, occasionally said, okay, you know what? I disagree completely, but I'm going to take the music out of my catalog and I'm going to send you a check for all the money I ever got from this piece. And that's the end of it. If you want to sue me, go ahead. And and nobody has ever sued me in my sure. career. So, so I guess that's good. But yeah, you need to you need to file your copyright if you want to be able to successfully defend your copyright in a lawsuit. The best way to do it is to have a, a copyright registration, although it's not required. So yeah, there are things that you need to do. You know, it's called the music business for a reason. 
It's a business. But for our listeners, this is like compared to the copyright registration, which we're talking about with Charlie. This is um this is a thing that like whereas the copyright is something that you can do, but it isn't inherently required. If you want to get money from public performance royalties, you have to register your songs when you sign up for a PRO mm-hmm. because that's how they know what your catalog is. Yeah, and and to to that point, you just the the idea of upkeep, you know, to get the most out of your membership of a PRO, you know, like you were talking about Doug the the expos and the the events that your PRO, I guess that that was kind of what I was getting at with my initial question is like, you know, should you immediately write somebody like, hey, I just signed up, would love to try to get plugged in. Like how, if if you're trying to use a PRO to be like, to create some community uh, as a music creator, what's the best way to make that happen? I mean, one, one of the blessings and curses of being with ASCAP is that it's enormous, you know? And so how... How do you find your way once you've signed on? Well, you know, I feel like that question is a little bit outside my purview, my expertise, because I have spent my career basically uh, working with the, you know, the people that I needed to, which was a fairly small group. Right. Um, I wasn't really involved in, you know, in the songwriting business. I was creating music for for my company, which was marketing that music to. Uh, people who are outside of the creative music business. So I didn't really have a, a, a need to, uh, you know, to build that kind of uh, network of people. I know that other people do, and I think that's a, a great thing that the PROs can help with. But honestly, um, you know, that was never my path, and I never really took advantage of, you know, the kind of collaboration that you can uh, create through the networks that a PRO offers you. Okay, okay. But you were indispensable in building it. And uh, for that, we thank you for all the work that you've done and for, for making Music Answers a thing, which otherwise this podcast wouldn't be a thing. And, and Doug, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate speaking with you on the podcast. You're absolutely welcome. And, uh, you know, I'm proud of what we've been able to do with Music Answers in terms of educating people. I think... Uh, you know, it's been good, and, and I appreciate what you guys are doing to kind of spread the word out there and, and uh, you know, help young creative people uh, get involved in the music business. We hope to, within weeks, earn our own personal good housekeeping seal. So fingers crossed on that <laughs> end. Uh, but thanks again, Doug. It's a pleasure, guys. Thank you so much. The Music Answers podcast is produced by Matt Rose and engineered by Josh Trimble. The music on today's episode was Pick Up by yours truly, Derek Fawcett. Music Answers is a music creator advocacy group of more than 4,000 signatories that seeks to protect, improve, and educate about the rights of songwriters, composers, performers, and producers. Visit musicanswers.org for important music creator information and to learn how you can support our efforts. Got questions you want answered on our podcast? Send them to us at musicanswers.org, Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. I'm your host, Derek Fawcett, and this was the Music Answers Podcast.